Hey guys, it's Naor. So a few hours ago it was announced that President Biden is going to name historian Deborah Lipstadt as envoy to combat anti-Semitism. Um, we interviewed Professor Lipstadt, who was also her life story, uh, was portrayed in the movie Denial a few years ago. And she was in Israel for the premiere of the movie here. And Eitan and I went to Jerusalem and met with her for a conversation. This was the early days of the podcast. Actually, it's episode 20, and we had an interesting conversation. So I was thinking that it's a good opportunity to uh, re-upload this episode. I think uh, it's an interesting conversation. So enjoy it. This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger, and you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. collaboration with Australian Jewish News. Check them out at ajn.timesofisrael.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. What's up, Ethan? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm good, great. Good. So today we're joined by uh, Dr. Deborah Lipstadt. Uh, Dr. Deborah Lipstadt is currently the Dorot Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where I just so happen to be from um, at one point in my life. Yeah, you've been all over the place. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's written several critically acclaimed books, including Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. She's in Israel as the special guest of honor at the Jewish Film Festival. The festival opens tonight with the premiere of the film Denial, starring Rachel Weisz, and it uh, portrays one of the seminal moments in your career and your battle against Holocaust deniers. Correct. It yeah. was a, a, a change in my, not just in my career, but in my life. It, it, it changed my life in a great, great way. That's amazing. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get to that, but I have a question for you to start out with, and Noor didn't like it so much, but we'll see how you feel about it. If I don't like it, I won't answer it. <laughs> I'll answer good. another That's question. Good. But I want to know, wh when was your first encounter with the concept of truth? And, you know, there's that, it's kind of an important, uh, I guess, phase in the development of childhood where we learn that, like, the tr truth is kind of this thing we can play with. You know, we lie to our parents. We say, you know, we brushed our teeth when we didn't brush our teeth. Right. I wonder if you if I you don't. Remember. That's a great question. And I, I think it would take too many years of psychotherapy for me to remember <laughs> that. Um, I don't remember. Oh, I okay. do remember my first encounter with Holocaust denial. Okay. Um, I was, it was in the beginning of my teaching career in the early 70s when you two probably weren't even glints in anybody's uh, imagination. Um, and I was teaching at the University of Washington in Seattle and Professor Yehuda Bauer, mm -hmm. who's very well known here in Israel, one of the top scholars on the history of the Holocaust, if not the Israel's most prominent scholar. Um, They'll probably show Friedlander has to be included in that, but that's for another conversation. We'll list them on the post. <laughs> right. uh, there's, some very, there's some terrific scholars here. But Yehuda was visiting us in, in Seattle as our guest for a week. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in the home of a, a colleague of mine, Professor Edward Alexander, for going to have a light bite with Yehuda and, and Eddie and his family. And Yehuda told us that he'd come from South Africa and he had countered Holocaust denial. And he handed me a booklet on it. And I looked at it and I said, 
It's crazy. It's it's mm-hmm. it's like the earth is flat. This is ridiculous. And I sort of threw disregarded the, it. Well, I threw the book. I remember throwing the book on the couch, you know, in sort of a. Uh, I don't really think this is very important. Right. I laughed. I said, "Who would take these guys seriously?" If that was about. I <laughs> little would say, did you know. Little. I would say that was probably seventy six, seventy seven, something uh-huh. like that. Then fast forward a little less than a decade. And my first book on the Holocaust had come out, which is Beyond Belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the American press coverage. What could Americans have known? And when could they have known it had the press treated? Um, and the book had been very well received. And I was here in Israel, I think, lecturing about the book. And I went up to Harat Sofim to visit uh, Yehuda and uh, his colleague Yisrael Gutman of Blessed Memory, who was also a uh, fabulous, Holoc- uh, very fabulous, maybe the wrong word, a substantial scholar of the Holocaust, particularly on Poland and, and, life, and Jewish life in the Warsaw Ghetto, where he had been. Um, and they sat me down and they said, Deborah, what's your next project? They said, I really don't know. I'm a little disturbed by that. I, I haven't figured it out, but the book had just come out. So they said, we have a suggestion for you. So I said, what? They said, Holocaust denial. So I looked at them and again, I laughed. You know, I thought even after a decade, a decade. It, yeah, yeah, because I knew it was I knew it was more prevalent. Yeah, I knew it was more common. Um, actually, Yehuda's my encounter with Yehuda in Washington probably was earlier than that. It was probably seventy five, so it was right before it had begun to spread. Because now I knew it was more prominent. There was an institute in California dedicated to Holocaust denial. Mm-hmm. They had a journal. They were much more common. But what surprised me then was not its existence. My first encounter, I was surprised by its existence. In this encounter, I wasn't surprised by the existence, but I was surprised that they thought scholars should take it seriously. So that was the next level cut. Mm -hmm. And I said, come on. And they said, no, no, we think it's a serious form of anti-Semitism. Both of them were connected with the Sassoon Center on Anti-Semitism at the Hebrew University. They said, we think it's, it's, it's a new form of, or a, a unique form of anti-Semitism and, and a classic form at the same time. So when two scholars of that magnitude mm-hmm. say to you, we think this is important, you don't slough it off. It needs to be addressed. Yeah, so I began to look at it and I said, you know what? I don't have another project on the table right now. <laughs> My schedule just so happens I mean, to, to be, be clear. Well, open in terms of research. Here they are wanting me to do it, wanting yeah. to support me from the Sassoon Center. I said, I'll spend a year or two on the topic. I'll write a book. But that finished, you know. Um, and uh, little did I know it would change my life. Yeah. That's interesting. So you were gently pushed towards that career-changing event. Exactly. But so, what, what I understand is that actually it's funny that you were reluctant and, and you had doubts about it because in your book you talk about the fact that after the book came out in the late 80s, then it was closer to the mic. It was mic. criticized by your fellow academics by for, some. for being kind of you give you're, you're taking these guys too seriously. Well, some people reacted that way. They yeah. were pleased with the scholarship. They said they learned a lot, but they used to say to me, "Deborah, you're taking these guys too seriously." And I said, "If you read the book carefully and everything I've written about deniers and all these years, even through the trial and even to today." I never say, you know, a la uh, Chicken Little, dear me, the sky is falling. Oh, my God, there's so many deniers out there. They're going to uh, change the whole history. I, I have never believed that, and I still don't believe it. There are more people who don't know about the Holocaust than 
who don't believe it happened, mm-hmm. though they're ripe for deniers. They're fodder for deniers. Yeah. There are more people, at one point in the United States, there were more people who believed that Elvis was alive than believed the Holocaust didn't happen. So if that's, that's what we call a chatzin half a consolation if you're from America. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, I've never been the annoy gewalter, as they say. Oh, yeah. my God, it's terrible. But I do think it's a serious phenomenon. Uh-huh. And I think it's particularly serious because it's tied, for two reasons, actually. A, it's completely tied up with anti-Semitism, because it is anti-Semitism uh-huh. at its core. It is, it is absolutely. And I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. Let me get to the other thing. And because today we have what's called softcore Holocaust denial, where people are not denying... Uh, the Holocaust itself, but they're saying, oh, the Jews are always talking about it. They're always referring to it. Uh, the let's put it behind us, let's maybe. Put it, yes, let's not play the Holocaust card enough already. And that's not someone who's saying it didn't happen, but that's someone who's saying, oh, it's not so important. And I, sometimes when, people, when I see that, you know, if I, if I encounter the person directly, I'll say to them, would you ever say to an African-American, enough about slavery already? We've heard enough about slavery. It was over. Probably who would say it to <laughs> Some of them might, but some of them wouldn't because sometimes you hear it from uh, enlightened, intellectual, liberal, with small l, um, thought people in the academy. Oh, we've heard enough about Holocaust. And, and they would never say that to, and nor should they, or would they right. say to an Armenian, um, you know, we've heard enough about the Armenian genocide. So, um, you know, so, I, so I'm, I, people, but people were more question. I wouldn't say critical, but they were skeptical about my devoting academic energy, mm-hmm. scholarly energy to what they called flat earth theorist, historical flat earth but, theorist. But, um, Eitan, as you set up your phone so that it won't close, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you, um, Professor Lipstadt, um, about the deniers. So who are they? Like mm-hmm. the, the typical denier, how how would you define him? How would you okay, portray I'll, him? Yeah, him. Your, your I, typical I, denier. <laughs> you know, your average denier. denier. <laughs> it's it's hard to know. First of all, I'll go along with the him, though there are some hers. You know, and uh-huh. uh, you know. Um, but generally, it's, gen- it's generally males. it's males. Generally, it's males. Now, by and large, when we're talking about hardcore denial deniers, such as David Irving, who sued me in the story that's depicted in the movie Denial, um, those deniers would say, oh, there were no gas chambers, there was no plan to kill the Jews, Hitler was the best friend the Jews had in Germany, that's what David Irving likes to say, uh, said at one point. Um, and who are those people? They're generally far right-wing, very conservative, and I don't mean politically conservative, but extremist. Um, they're generally also racists, uh, and they are... Caucasians? Um, by and large, by and large. Um, and, uh, for instance, David Irving had total contempt for what was happening in England with, uh, you know, he said, I turn on the TV and I see one of them reading our news to us. And who was the de- them? He was referring to Trevor McDonald, Sir Trevor McDonald, a very prominent BBC newscaster. Not uh, BBC, but a, a British um, newscaster, but he's a black man. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he's them reading it to us. Right. So, uh, yes, by and large, Caucasian, very often fellow travelers of neo-Nazi groups, though themselves, and that was the interesting thing, that's what made Irving such an uh, interesting and frightening character, is that 
you will never catch them in a neo-Nazi uh, uniform. You will never ca catch them. Rarely will you catch them doing a sigheil salute or something like that. Right. We're seeing a contemporary incarnation of them in the United States today, much younger. Uh -huh. um, and that's amongst a group called Alt-Right, mm -hmm. uh, which got a lot of attention since um, uh, Donald Trump's uh, election um, as president or as president-elect in the United States, mm -hmm. um, and these this group they're they're just like they're the David Irving generation of deniers. Well dressed, sound very intellectual, um, institutions which sound neutral. I think the the alt right uh, in, institute, so to speak, is called the National Policy Institute, not the Institute on a White America or something like that. They'd never do that. Mm -hmm. And they had one slip, and you will not see it again. The slip, I would say it happened in November. It did happen in November, about two or three weeks after the election. And you, if you go to um, if your readers, uh, if your listeners, excuse me, uh, Google Atlantic Magazine, they were there and they taped it, where um, uh, the leader, Richard Spencer of Alt-Right, a young man with the University of Chicago degree, stood up there and raised his arm in a Nazi salute and said, hail Trump voters, mm. hail Trump, hail, you know, and it was, it was, but you'll never see that again. But, but that's in the, They won't let it be seen. That's in the Western world. What about the Eastern Arabic okay. world? In the Arabic world, which is, I'm, I'm glad you added that, in the Ara Arabic world, in the Muslim slash Arab world, because that's not, not all Arabs, as you well know, Yes. Um, Iranian and certain are not Arabs for right. those who don't. Right, Iranian, mm -hmm. Indonesian, Malaysian, yeah. etc. Um, you find hardcore denial alive and well. You know, either the Jews made this up to get a state of Israel, because you know there's a problem. Certainly for for Arab Muslims, there's a big problem with um, the Holocaust as a fact, because. Um, here you go and you say that between uh, 1941 and 1945, one out of every three Jews was killed. And you go and you say, you know, and, and, and one of the things that typifies it, even amongst Jews, which I don't know is entirely accurate, oh, they went like, they went like sheep to the slaughter. Um, which I think, again, is not fair and not true, but that's the perception. Yes. Um, then comes 1948, Three years later, we're sitting here in Jerusalem, we're looking out at, at Mount Zion. Three years later, they defeat five, what is it, five Arab armies? Yes, about so five. So five Arab armies. So how are these people who but three years earlier... Ashes of, of men. Ashes of men and women. Yes. Um, people, one out of three is every killed. And then they turn around, they're able to defeat... So either... They this never either there's something like someone gave them a Superman super superwoman pill and they suddenly changed their entire entity, or we were so weak and um, which is not an inept option. right so, or we were so weak and inept that we couldn't fight them which if you're trying to build up Arab pride is impossible so you say they made it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I I wonder where where do you think this. Uh, I mean, because, you know, the Holocaust denial is a tool that's used as it's a tool of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. where, where does this obsession come from? Why do you, do you have you yeah. ever tackled that? Have I ever... have tackled it and often I tackle it, but I stay away from it. I'll, I'll give you an example. A few nights ago, I was speaking at the uh, at an event sponsored by the American Embassy here on Holocaust denial. And someone raised their hand, an intelligent person, and said, how do you explain David Irving's mm -hmm. um, anti-Semitism. He had seen the movie, he knew my book, 
Um, he said, how do you explain it? Did he have some encounter as a child or something? And I said, I'm reluctant to answer that. Because first of all, it takes you into the realm of psychohistory, and I'm not uh, trained as a, I, I'm a, uh, I may be a consumer of psychology, but not trained as a psychologist or psychoanalyst. But more importantly, anti-Semitism, just like racism, is a prejudice. Think about the etymology of the word prejudice. Prejudge. I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. Mm -hmm. um, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense to say, I see uh, an African-American in the United States. I see an African-American. I see someone who is, and I'm putting this in big quotation marks, shiftless and lazy. You know, a well, again, quotation marks, a welfare cheat, which are the stereotypes of, mm -hmm. of African-American, racism about African-Americans. Or I see an Italian, oh, must be mafioso. Or I see a pretty young blonde girl on campus, she must be dumb. Because that's the stereotype. It's as, it's as vindictive as the other stereotypes. Or I see a Jew, and I see someone who's powerful and conniving and untrue and money-hungry. In other words, to look for a rational explanation to mm -hmm. someone's prejudice, be it anti-Semitism, be it racism, be it misogyny, be it homophobia, um, is to take an irrational sentiment and give it a rational meaning. For instance, if you had ever been uh, cheated by someone with blonde hair, mm -hmm. would you go around the rest of your life hating, if you went around the rest of your life hating blonde-haired people, everyone would say- I would. <laughs> well, everyone would say, you're crazy, you know, and rightfully so, I would say it too, thank you very much, even though it's very nice to be on your program. Um, but, so, so I'm reluctant to look for that. Okay. Um, I think what we, one of the ways and in this anti-Semitism differs from racism. Anti-Semitism is part of the conspiracy theory. Racism says the person of color, so mm -hmm. to speak, African-American, whatever, the black person, whatever, wherever you may be, whatever. Um, the other. The other, the non-Caucasian, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the eyes, of course, of the anti-Semite Jews are not Caucasian, but we'll leave that aside yeah. for the moment. The non-Caucasian person is lesser, and they're going to infiltrate us, and they're going to bring us down. That's the racist Mm -hmm. uh, a, a perspective, Weltanschauung, as we call it, worldview. The anti-Semitic worldview is a flip of that. It's a conspiracy theory. The Jew is powerful. In I'm the weak. I'm powerful the weak. and weak at the same time, yes. But when you're drawing the powerful, the powerful part, of, the Jew has a unique ability, conniving, manipulative, a unique ability to do damage to us. Right. And they can, this small group, take mm -hmm. it back to Holocaust and I'm the victim and he's the... He or she's the perpetrator, yeah. but I'm the majority. Mm -hmm. And we are innocent, you know. And if you take it back to Holocaust denial, you take this group of small group of number of people, relatively small number of people. Somehow they're able to convince the whole world through threat, through manipulation, through devious tactics, to adopt this myth again, quote unquote, myth of the Holocaust. To plant documents, to plant evidence, to get a sovereign country, Germany, mm -hmm. to say we did it. Not only to say we did it but to pay billions in reparations. And there goes right to the anti-Semitic myth. And why did the Jews do it? Because to get money and to get a state. Political deviousness, financial. It's all part of the big plan. It's all part of the big plan, which fits into the 
anti-Semitic stereotypes. Yes. So that's a very long answer to your question of, I have no idea whether he encountered something, but this conspiracy theory does appeal to him. But uh, nonetheless, um, it seems from the bits of pieces from, of the film that I saw, because it, uh, it just premieres here now, but it seems that there is a, a sort of a, the portrayal of Irving doesn't, it, it has a bit of sympathy in it. And it does, it, it is portrayed as a bit, like you see the human side and also comes to mind, I don't know if you know the Louis Theroux documentaries. Mm -hmm. He had uh, several about neo-Nazis and even in those documentaries, American neo-Nazis. And even there where you see stuff that, that disgust you, you still feel a bit of, of pitiness. So my question to you is, do you have some empathy to maybe some of them in some I, circumstances? No, I don't have empathy to them, but you picked up, even though it's only seen segments, and in fact, um, on the uh, for American North American listeners, I think it's, it's actually worldwide, if you go to the Bleecker Street website, Bleecker was the North American, or is the North American distributor, you go to the denial page, to videos, there's a featurette there with a short clip of an interview with Timothy Spall, who plays David Irving. He's Mag amazing. Amazing, amazing, magnificently. Oh, and the, the, the actors in general are amazing. Tom Wilkinson, yeah. Rachel Weisz, Andrew Scott, you couldn't get better than that. Um, and Timothy Spall speaks about the fact, he says, look, I know I was playing a despicable character, but I couldn't hate him because then he would become a caricature. Yes. So, in fact, when Timothy was on the set, I noticed that when there was a break for lunch, a couple of times I was there and he was on the set, I never saw him. I figured, okay, maybe he's in his room, his trailer, whatever, wherever they put him, um, and they brought him lunch. And, but in the interview, he says, uh, or in one interview, I don't know if it's the particular interview on the, on the Bleecker Street site, uh, he says, I, I, I didn't mix with the other character. I just found mm. myself sitting in a darkened room. He didn't say, like, prepare a darkened room for me. He said, I found myself <laughs> sitting in a darkened room because I had to stay in character. And in fact, there was an amazing incident. But that seems to also be part of the character, to be the outsider. Well, he says, stay in character, but I didn't, couldn't play him as this despicable character because mm -hmm. he'd become a caricature. Mm -hmm. And even David Hare, the, the gifted screenwriter of, of, uh, and the writer of the screenplay, David Hare, um, there was an incident with him, which I thought he might include because it was so amazing. Everybody in the courtroom, the 300 people, packed into that courtroom that day, or 200 people, whatever it was. Um, and, and we were just, you know, everyone collectively held their breath when it happened. In his closing speech, David Irving looked at the judge, and instead of saying, your lordship, he said, mein Fuhrer. And, wow. And, you know, there were leading journalists were there because it was a closing day. There were, everyone heard it. And there was a, and he quickly corrected himself. It did not make it into the transcript, but hundreds of people heard it. Um, I guess if you put if you'd put it in the script, it would feel too scripted. It would look it would look <laughs> right. ludicrous, and you'd say this man is a complete crazy man. Why do we have a film about him? Yeah. Yes, he he, he ma managed to engineer this this uh, um, lawsuit, but but he's not worth having a, uh, a movie about. So I think David Hare made very careful choices, and Timothy Spall played it very very well in terms of how far can I push it. To be obnoxious, to be despicable, but yet yet not, but not not likable so much, but not to be a caricature. Mm -hmm. so, that, so how do you feel about it? 
Um, I think the man is despicable. I think the man is... Look, I don't, I don't waste very much time nowadays thinking about him. People say to me, did you see what he wrote on his website? I said, no, I don't go on his website, which is true. Um, and when people send me stuff, I don't bother reading it. Um, someone said, what does he think about the film? I said, I don't... Probably hasn't seen it yet, or maybe he has, because they're probably he may have seen it in the States or something. Um, I don't know, and I don't care. No, but in general, my, my question was a bit more general. Like, do you see... I, more of those who, who are very strictly from ignorance and, and from, yes. know, from circumstances that you f don't you feel some, don't you find yourself? I, I, look, I don't have to waste my sympathy feeling for people who hate me and despise me. I and think I'm part yeah. of a people who, I'm part of a great conspiracy. I've got a lot of people to feel sympathy for in this world who, for whom I don't feel, my own mistakes, I don't have, I don't, I'm not showing enough sympathy. We're sitting in Jerusalem, how far is Aleppo from here? I feel sympathy for the yes. people there. I should feel much, I should be doing much more. All of us should be doing much more. Um, but I know what you're asking. Uh, the analogy I use very often is you're on an airplane, you sit down in seat 10A, and you just sit down getting ready for a long flight. You make yourself comfortable, and then in 10B sits down David Irving. You don't know who it is. Hello? And you make the mistake of talking to him. I never talk to the person next to me until the, the uh, a pilot says, uh, fasten your seatbelts, we're about to land. Because then, you're interviewers, you know, in 15 minutes you can get a lot of information out of someone. So I could find out about them if they're really interesting or valuable. I could learn something from them, I get their contact information. And if they're a nudnik, 15 minutes is, you know, not so terrible. <laughs> But uh, you make the mistake of saying to David Irving, what do you do? And you say, oh, I write about the Holocaust. You say, oh, that's a terrible thing. I don't know much about it, but I know it was just awful, terrible genocide. And he says, well, you'll be glad to know it didn't happen. And he spends the next eight hours, let's say you're flying trans transcontinental or transatlantic, um, spends the next eight hours uh, telling you all the reasons why it didn't happen. You don't think I could use that as grounds to get uh, bumped up to first no, class? not exactly. I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think so. You could get used for grounds to get kicked off the plane. Um, but um, so it would be you I would be worried about because you're sort of tabla rasa. You come from a society, anybody raised in a Western society, just virtually anyone, has been raised in a world with tinges of racism, tinges of anti-Semitism. You can't help it. People will sometimes say to me, I was driving home and I got cut off on the road by this terrible driver, African-American, and you suddenly stop and you think, what relevance is that he was African-American? Nothing, he's a lousy driver, you know? Um, but that's, that's that racist kind of... That and then someone takes it and, and manipulates it. Well, but the person skillfully. himself is not so is not even aware when you say to them, "What is it?" And they might say, "Oh my God, you're right," and they might stop doing it. It's the person who's the sort of innocent, who has been raised somehow to think, "Well, Jews are really powerful. Jews are really rich. Jews will do conniving things." Um, exactly. And and they're susceptible. So for David Irving and those people. No sympathy. Yeah. You know, no, for, no, for, for the, for the, for or, them. or no concern. They're, they're, they're what you would say in Yiddish, farfallen. It's a lost cause. It's a totally lost Hopeless. cause. Hopeless. Hopeless, exactly. Yeah. Um, but for those they might impact, those are the ones. I think. Yeah.
Maybe we should take a step back and explain about the story of the film and the book, because I'm not sure we actually we touched didn't. it. We, didn't. <laughs> we, we jumped right <laughs> in. Yeah, we dropped. Well, the, the story is quite simple on some level. Um, you, I, you guys can have strawberries. Okay, yeah, we have homegrown strawberries here. Um, we all have one. Why not? And I've just learned that the, the, uh, that the strawberry season in Israel is in the winter. So yes. if that's not true, you can write to these guys and tell them. <laughs> sue us. Uh, in not, Britain, I don't think in, you can sue them. In the UK. In, the, um, in any case, um, I wrote a book on Holocaust denial, this book that professors Bauer and Goodman asked me to write or su- and, and you know, suggested that I write. And in it, I devoted a couple hundred page, a couple hundred words, uh, to David Irving, in which I described him as the most dangerous of Holocaust deniers. Who is a British, a British writer of historical just a bit works. Closer to the mic. A British writer of historical works, mm-hmm. and I described him as a the most dangerous of Holocaust deniers because, unlike other deniers who were only known for being deniers, David Duke and people like that. David Duke, the former head of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Um, David Irving had a reputation as a writer of historical works. He was an excellent writer, uh, f- very fluent in German, and, and simpatico. His books always had a sort of the Nazis weren't so bad and the Allies weren't so good kind of tinge to them. And very close relations with people in Germany. We get documents that others had and things like that. In the late, in the 70s, he began to flirt with deniers, became what we call in America a fellow traveler of deniers. Not a denier, but hanging around with them, talking to them, promoting some of their ideas, etc. Um, then in the late 80s, he came out as a denier, he identified himself as a denier, um, and, and, and accepted it whole hog, you know, all, all the way, 100%. Um, so that's exactly when I was writing my book about denial. So I included those couple of hundred words about him. The book came out in the United States, a very fine reviews, and then was bought by Penguin UK, and it came out in England. Um, and once it came out in England and was sold in England, I was considered by British law of having done business in the, in the United Kingdom and therefore um, subject to their, their laws, including their libel laws, and he sued me for libel there. Now, uh, libel law in the United Kingdom is the mirror image of American libel law. In America, if I say you lied about me, I have to prove you lied about me because you have a presumption of innocence. In England, when it comes to libel law, you as the author of the words have to prove the truth of what you said as opposed to the person who's been written about having to prove the falsehood. So in other... Oh, the Brits. <laughs> Guilty. I don't know. I innocent. don't know how it is here in Israel. Do you know how it is here in Israel? So before you make fun of the Brits, you better check. Because <laughs> uh, a, yeah, a lot of your law is based on British law. Yeah. Um, in any case, so... Um, had, but that's very important. Because had I not fought, he would have won by default. Mm-hmm. And there were many people who said to me, don't fight, settle, ignore it. And now you can ignore a libel suit. But settle, everyone will know you're settling with a denier and you just don't want to give him the publicity. Um, but had I not done it, he would have won by default. Then he could have said, my, date, my, David Irving version of the Holocaust is correct because Deborah Lipstadt libeled me when she called me a denier. Therefore, I'm not a denier. Um, and his version is classic Holocaust denial. There was no plan to kill the Jews. Uh, the number six million is an exaggerated number. Some Jews died. Nobody was killed purposely. Uh, for being Jewish. Um, Hitler was the best friend the Jews had in Germany. The whole thing is a myth that the Jews have created to get a state 
to get money, again, going back to those anti-Semitic themes of conniving Jews. So no, I understand uh, that. I mean, you didn't just have to prove that he was uh, that the information he was providing was false. You had to prove that he was lying, which is different. That's right. And we had to, what we did, and that's why my book was originally called History on Trial, and it's now called Denial, as mm-hmm. as the name of the movie. We now have a movie tie-in edition of my memoir on the trial, um, because start, we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. We had to prove it was deliberate. We had to prove that he didn't just make a mistake and misquote a document. So therefore, we presented the court with over 25 major examples. So sometimes within a major example, there'd be three or four you know, wow. facets of where, if you follow the footnotes, there's a deliberate falsification of the truth. He put someone at a meeting who wasn't at a meeting. He said the person spoke to Hitler and Hitler made him do this, that, or the other. He didn't, that person never saw Hitler that day. He says Hitler sent out a mis- message on Kristallnacht to stop the violence. But how do you pr- prove you that look it's at deliberate? The, well, first of all, if you give enough examples and all your examples hmm. move in the same direction, yeah. we use the analogy of the waiter. The waiter who shortchanges his customers if it's a mistake, sometimes he'll mm-hmm. shortchange the customer, sometimes he'll shortchange himself. If he consistently shortchanges the customer, then you say this is not a mistake, this is mm-hmm. a pattern. And that's what we showed. We showed over and over again that he would take a document and completely switch its meaning, switch the sequence of events, add words, change a word, leave a word out, which totally changes um, the, the meaning of what was being said. And you know, sometimes when I teach about this at the university, at Emory University, I, um, and I wanna show students this, they think, oh, this must be very hard to do. I say, take a newspaper article, any newspaper article you want, and by virt- with leaving out words, adding a word, not whole sentences and not whole, um, adding a word you know, in front of, in front of a, a, a noun or something, um, or changing sequence, change the meaning of the article. And they all think, oh my God, this is going to be really hard, and they find they can do it in no time. <laughs> scary. It is scary. Scary. It shows it's, how much, well, uh, it's, how, how, how detailed the, and how much responsibility lies in the work of journalists. What, exactly. It shows how you have to be careful. And yeah. it also demonstrates why today, this year, the Oxford English Dictionary has called post-truth Mm-hmm. The word of the year and it's others in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that actually brings up a question that I had because in the election, um, uh, leading up to the election and after the election, there was a big, uh, it was a big story in the news. The the, the fake news that was mm-hmm. that was That's surfacing true. in the states. And it wasn't just surfacing. I uh, it was affecting the possibly potentially affecting yeah, the outcome. Yeah. So I, I actually read that um, that there was a place in Eastern Europe. I can't remember the exact country where there. Students and universities there were, were making online uh, news sources, and they were just grabbing content, you know, slapping on a flashy head title right. and shipping it out Pope to the states. Pope endorses Trump, yeah. or Pope doesn't endorse yeah. Trump, or whatever. Usually aimed at Trump supporters because mm-hmm. they found that that was their you know uh, best clientele. Right. But um, one of their stories had four hundred thousand either likes or shares. Whereas a New York Times article had, you know, at most 150, 175,000. And I wonder if, and, and there's a lot of talk about how this, this, this is a sort of new phenomenon. You it's, know? It's, well, it's not an entirely new phenomenon, mm-hmm. but it has a new medium now. 
Yeah. You know, cars were not a new phenomenon, but then you built super highways mm-hmm. and cars could get places from one end to the other much faster. Yeah. So uh, you've had false news for a long time. Uh, think back to the Dreyfus case, the, the, libel, the libel, the treason charges against Alfred Dreyfus mm-hmm. um, in France at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where things were made up. But now you have a social uh, highway, uh, information highway, super highway, that the, the information goes from one end to the other in, you know, a second. Yeah, but on the other hand, it also makes the truth more accessible. Yes, absolutely. I'm not beating up on the internet yeah. here. I mean, we're sitting here using a, 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 a modicum or a, a vehicle of the internet to, 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 to broadcast this interview and this discussion. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying that it changes things. And it makes gives journalists, and mm-hmm. not just journalists, mm-hmm. consumers of information, a much heavier responsibility. And people can't just say, "I read it on the internet." Or sometimes, very intelligent people will speak. Oh, I saw that that you know, when someone said to me about Hillary Clinton, I saw that she's not well and that she's really mm-hmm. sick. And I said, "Where did where did you see? It? Oh, I saw it someplace where people are talking about it." I said, "Where did you see it?" Who said it? What information did they have? And the person thought, oh, my God, she's a real Clinton supporter. And it wasn't that I was a Clinton supporter, but that wasn't the cause. I, I want people to pay attention. This gift we have of the Internet, mm-hmm. which allows us to research things, to look up things, to find things in a way that we never could before, um, also comes with it with a responsibility to be careful about what we say and the news we spread. Because as you said just a moment ago, where, you know, the story, some false story coming out of Eastern mm-hmm. Europe from these kids uh, got 400,000 hits, and the New York Times story correcting it got 100,000 hits, mm-hmm. just using the numbers loosely. Um, it, there's, what's also been shown is that the fake news story will have a much greater impact than the correction. So you print a correction, mm-hmm. and people read it, and they forget that it's a correction. They think yeah. they're reading the, So it's it's very dangerous. There will be... People who will use this, as we've seen, Mm -hmm. and it puts the responsibility on those of us who think we're trying to make up our minds as freely as possible and based on open information as possible to be very careful about. So speaking of corrections, I just want to, because it wasn't, um, I I, I think I misspoke. It wasn't a correction on the article. It was the two most popular Uh uh, uh, um, articles during the election. And Mm -hmm. they were just showing the disparity of like the coverage. But the the same thing happens with the corrections. Far fewer read the corrections. But I do want to ask as a as a an expert on history and historic historiography historiography the study of historiographical methodology you know i had to make up on yeah you're you're fine keep on going so anyway as as an expert of this is there is there is there a way that you know our our listeners if they're looking at a at a news story is there a way they can immediately say you know hey this is suspect yes you know there was recently i wish i could pull it up and possibly if I, you know, turned on my phone, which we've turned off so it won't disturb the broadcast. There was an article about two weeks ago in a teenage magazine mm-hmm. on how to, I'll, I'll get it for you so you can post it or whatever, on how to think about these stories. What's the site that's putting it up there? Is it a regular, is it a dot-com site or is it a kind of site that you've never heard of? Mm-hmm. Who's being cited? Who's saying it? What proof are they offering? Are other, are other 
normal mainstream media sites also reporting this. I'll give you an example, which I think might be of some interest to your viewers, a very disturbing example. Um, after, on the day of 9-11, or the next day, I think it was on the day, some reporter reported from New Jersey, I think from Jersey City, which is just on the other side of the Hudson, opposite the World Trade Center, or of, of the former World Trade Center, reported that there were Muslims dancing in the street. Mm-hmm. Within a few hours, he retracted the report. He knew he'd gotten misinformation and it wasn't true, but the report went viral. Now, there was a video on television of Muslims, Arabs dancing in East Jerusalem. I've seen it. And mm-hmm. it says underneath East Jerusalem, and they're handing out candies and sweets and things like that. So um, there are people, including the president-elect of the United States, who go around saying, oh, I saw that video. Mm-hmm. And you say, but it doesn't exist. Oh, I saw it, and lots of other people saw it. That, that's part of that false information, you know, post-truth. Lots of other people say, or people say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and even Breitbart News which can't be accused of being a liberal, you know, outlet, media outlet, says there is no evidence for that, that video existing. They won't say, it seems to me they won't say directly, it's untrue, but they're saying there is no evidence for that video. Fast forward two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I'm in the gym early in the morning, and I'm working with my trainer, a a number of us are working, and we chat. And somehow something came up about the election, even though most of us try to stay away from that discussion just because we're walking around with heavy weights and it's not a good conversation <laughs> to have when you've got heavy pa- weights in your it's hand. dangerous, yeah. Dangerous for the person standing next to you. Um, and uh, someone said something. I said, oh, that's as untrue as Muslims dancing in New Jersey. So the person said to me, they did. <laughs> And I said, no, they didn't. There's no evidence. He said they found the video. I said, excuse me? He said, yes, they found the video and showed it on Fox News, and I saw it. And I, I went and I started to say, no, you didn't. And someone, in fact, who was trying to be neutral about all this. But that's what happens. This is classic denial. Mm-hmm. The classic modus operandi of deniers. Someone went to their Google thing and started to Google and he found the Breitbart site that says no evidence, you know. And mm-hmm. he said to me, well, here's a point for your favor. I said, it's not a point in my favor. We're talking about facts here. This guy is sure he saw it on Fox News, that Fox News found it. Now, Fox News is a right-wing, Republican-oriented site, very openly so. It will tell you it never showed the video, because the video doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But here is a man holding very heavy weights over his head, I don't know, very conservative, very right-wing, um, I don't know if he's smart or not. He, I don't think he can be very smart, but insisting that he saw a non-existent video. That's scary. That's very scary. So, um, how do well, you, how do you uh, protect memory? Because, I mean, you know, the memory comes into play here. If everybody, if everybody just uh, lost their memory tomorrow, I mean, did the, did the Holocaust happen? Of course it happened. How do you but, protect it? And also, how do you fight the bigger and bigger waves of, of ignorance that we see it's, on the same... It, it's very hard, and it's a very depressing question. Because so moving on. <laughs> I deal Let's in, skip it. I deal in, for a pre- pretty optimistic person, I deal in pretty pessimistic... I'm going to have a stra- right, strawberry right, while you right, answer this. Um, <laughs> look, I don't know the precise answer. If I knew the price... It's like someone said to me, how do you fight anti-Semitism? I don't know how you fight anti-Semitism. If I knew, I would you know, be fight, using that and trying to eradicate it. What I do know is you expose facts. You show um, 
the delusional aspect. Um, I'll give you an example. Sometimes with logic. Sometimes it's with documents, as we did in my trial. In the trial, we followed the documents. David Irving says, I have a document which proves only Jews were only killed because they were spies and partisans against the Germans. Well, you look at the document, it doesn't say that. Or I have a document, again, which proves that um, Hitler told Admiral Horthy, the head of the Hungarian government, that he didn't have to kill the Jews. Well, when you look at the document, it doesn't say that. Um, but um, it's it, so you so you use documents you use but some you could, that's one way <coughs> excuse me but another way is logic. Deniers like to say Holocaust deniers like to say that um, the very fact that Germans were all powerful and the Germans were efficient in the extreme, and the very fact that at the end of the war. There were 250, whatever the number is, probably more than 1,000 um, survivors alive, proves that the Holocaust didn't happen. Because the Germans would never have allowed so many witnesses to the camps. They weren't witnesses. Most of them, a few of them were witnesses to the actual killing process. There were Sonderkommandos who survived. Um, but the vast majority didn't. Um, and um, the, the Germans would have never allowed these people to continue to exist. So the very fact that they exist proves that it couldn't happen because the Germans would never have allowed this. It's just counterfactual, counterlogical. So I present this to my students, and they think about it. I said, now, someone demolish that argument for me. And if it's a really smart group of students, and often it is, generally it is, someone, sometimes they need a little pushing. I'll say, well, what else did the Germans possibly want to accomplish, did they accomplish, did the Germans want to accomplish, did the Germans accomplish everything they wanted to? And it would not take students very long to say, well, they didn't win the war. So the whole premise of the Germans uh, would, never have, uh, would never have allowed these people to alive, there, therefore, the whole premise of their being so totally efficient is, is laid to rest. So it calls for work. We got this gift called the internet. We received this gift called the internet. It has changed our lives. It has changed our research, but it comes with responsibilities. Right, right. Um, back to the film. I was wondering, you know, it seems to me that, that Hollywood has a role to play where it comes to remembering the Holocaust and, and maybe even fighting the deniers, and your film is a good example. But I was wondering, like, where... where um, Where's the what question? role it plays? Yeah, what, what, what role does it really play, in, in your opinion? And moreover, uh, you know, it bothers me that here in Israel we don't have so many films about the Holocaust. We don't make many films, so I wonder what you think about it and if you can explain that. Yeah, like, I, I mean, fiction films. Yeah. Um, look, I think fiction films about the Holocaust are very hard to make. This film is not a fiction film. What's interesting about, amongst the interesting things about denial over and above the superb acting and directing and screenplay, um, is that it's based on truth. Yeah, yeah. fiction, I mean, non-documentary. Right, right. But it's a, not a documentary film, yeah. but, it's, but everything that's said in the courtroom comes from the transcripts. That's David Hare's genius. He took these actual statements and wove it into this interesting and funny. I, a lot of the, last night I was amazed. It, it, the first screening here in Israel was last night at the Cinematheque, and people around me were laughing. I loved it because they were funny scenes. And I was saying, will they get it? Will they get it? And they were really laughing. There's a lot of sort of um, irony and humor in it. 
uh, amazingly enough. I can't comment on Israeli films of fiction films. I mean, I know Israeli films. I watch lots of Israeli films. I watch lots of foreign films. But it would be hard for me to really comment in that way. Um, sometimes it's hard to make films about something that is very close to you. Here's me surmising. This is simply a, you know, my mind wandering, which I, you know, I wouldn't stand behind it with very much. But um, my mind I would, but not with this opinion, with this I thought. But it could be that in Israel, it's, it's been so around you, with Israel, of course, having the highest proportion, not number, raw number, of survivors. Um, so many memorials, so much, um, me- so much mention of it. Um, and sometimes even, and I say this very carefully, potentially over-mention of it. Not that... Here we call it the festival of the Holocaust. Well, I think th- I wouldn't use that term. I find, it's, it's, I find that offensive. Of course. And I, and I, and but I, I, I bring I, it up because right. you hear it. But I want to say quite clearly that there'd be no um, mistake. I find that offensive. And mm-hmm. anybody who would say that, I would walk out on them probably mm-hmm. or, or beat them up or whatever verbally. Um, you can be critical without being offensive. True. Um, so, uh, But there are times when I think... Um, quote-unquote, cheap analogies are made to the Holocaust when the Holocaust is used in contemporary politics, um, both to inculcate Jewish identity, to fight anti-Semitism, to justify political decisions when it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Things can be bad. Things can be very bad. A decision can be made that's, that's terrible. But you don't have to compare it to the Holocaust. And we have someone in my country who, who may soon become a very prominent person in um, Middle Eastern politics who has compared a left-wing political group, with which I have a lot of difference, to Kapos. Mm-hmm. Um, our next ambassador. Our next ambassador. Yeah, you're a visitor in our country, yes, yes. Right, exactly. Now, you can disagree with J He Street. said J Street is ca- our Kapos. Mm-hmm. Or like Kapos. Yeah. And he stood by it. He was given a chance now to retract it. And um, you, can, you can say, you can disagree with J Street on everything. Uh, you can think their, their policy is wrong, their approach is wrong, etc. But to compare them to Kapos, come on, that's, that's an extreme. Well, if Bibi says the Iranians are, are like Hitler and the Holocaust, so, you know, it doesn't have, it isn't... Doesn't seem so Look, far-fetched I don't, all of I a don't sudden. Think, I, don't, I would not question that there aren't some Israeli, uh, Iranians, excuse me, Iranians who would like to see the destruction of the state of Israel. You know, one bomb, boom, finished. Um, even the president, you know, yeah. talked about. Yesterday, the Pakistani, and uh, I don't know if you heard about it, said the Pakistani minister of defense said uh, we we're going to nuke Israel. But yeah. So, and that's pretty serious. Yep. That's pretty serious. You, you only told me now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you have... Um, Leaders, I forget it was of Hamas or Hezbollah, who said, you know, we'd like all the Jews to come to Israel because then it'd be easier to, to wipe them out. That's serious stuff. That is very serious stuff, and it's not to be diminished. But, you know, and that comes probably the closest to a Hitler analogy. But I would rather leave it to others to make the analogy and to say, Hitler or no Hitler, such a statement is outrageous, dangerous, contemptible, and deserving of the most extreme criticism by everyone, irrespective of where you stand or where you live or whatever. Um, we have to be careful 
of those kind of analogies. Look, um, ki kids, in my, more my generation, the first post-Holocaust generation, but, and not in my house, not in my, my home was never like this, but among, and often, you know, the, the specter of, of uh, what the Nazis did was raised to, you know, to do all, to accomplish all sorts of things. Things can be bad, things can be dangerous, anti-Semitism can be bad without drawing analogies. Now sometimes maybe you should draw an analogy, but we have to be careful. Yeah. But there's, it, it, I mean, there's a slight contradiction, it's probably not a contradiction, I guess it's in my misunderstanding of it, but I want to clarify, because in the beginning you said let's not shy away from uh, the relevance of the Holocaust in, mm -hmm. in history, and we should talk about it, and mm -hmm. we should talk about the implications it has in Absolutely. the present. And, you know, a lot of the times it's like they say, uh, the second you bring up Hitler and the Nazis, you've lost your argument. So I, I, I you know, obviously, you know, God forbid not to draw analogies, but uh, where, where's the line where? There is no, I can't give you an exact line. And if you do find, you know, <laughs> if you f find, um, uh, you know, there was a famous, uh, writer who once said, you know, uh, uh, an incon, what is it, uh, Consistencies, uh, consistency of the hobgoblins of small minds. Like someone who is always consistent, mm -hmm. he's got a small mind. You know, yeah. um, I am not always consistent, yeah. um, and I, sometimes you're inconsistent. You know, so. But at the same time, I don't know that it's such an inconsistency. To see, what I'm saying is that I think the Holocaust has definite relevance. Mm -hmm. um, sadly. Uh, you know, the never again slogan is really again and again and again. Think Cambodia, think Srebrenica, think Rwanda, think Darfur, think Sudan, um, think Aleppo. Mm -hmm. um, it may not be a Holocaust. You know, you could say, oh, well, if you look at it from historical perspectives, and I agree with that, it's not precisely a Holocaust where you wanted to wipe out not just the people in a certain area in Rwanda. If you were a Tutsi, and you weren't in Rwanda, you were safe. If you were in Rwanda, you were subject to, to the worst kind of annihilation. Um, any kind of annihilation is bad. Um, but, but it's bad enough. Srebrenica, yeah. they, they murdered 15,000 Muslim men and boys. The UN, thank you very much, pulled out. The Dutch peacekeepers pulled out. And the Serbs went in and killed them, murdered them. Um, that's the kind, so you might say, well, it's not a Holocaust because they weren't murdering all the Muslims in the area or whatever it might be, but it's bad enough. It's bad mm -hmm. enough. So I think there's a lot we can learn from the Holocaust. I didn't like the analogies. I mean, I was not a supporter of Trump at all. Um, I was an opponent. I think, I thought he was dangerous and I think still think there much about him that is dangerous. Um, but I didn't have to go running to make analogies to Hitler. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's dangerous too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to use a scalpel as opposed to an axe. Hmm. Well, this, that's it, I'm afraid. We enjoyed it very much and we would continue, but we can't. Um, so I just would say that uh, Israelis uh, who listen to us are invited to go to the cinemas and watch the film. And yes, it'll, it'll open in Israel, a little plug here for the filmmakers because yes. they worked so hard to make what I think is an excellent film. The, it opens in Israel on the 29th of... Oh, that's uh, all right. That's all right. <laughs> it's, okay. it's Rachel Weisz, uh, <laughs> uh, On the 29th of uh, December and in the UK on the 27th of January. And I'm going to answer the phone. Okay, you guys. <laughs> Thank you phone. so much, Deborah. Thank you so much. And Eitan? Thank you, Noah. Bye. Bye.